Hey, friends and potential lovers. Have you ever felt so passionately after watching a TV show or a movie but not have a pal to share it with? Allow us the honor of keeping you company with our weekly podcast for your reference with your hosts, Katie and OT. Each episode, we break down our hot takes that you'll either ardently agree or vehemently disagree with, like subs versus dubs. How important is a cohesive narrative? What's with the popularity of the relatable villain? Is it possible to be truly objective in spite of your own experiences? And most importantly, are you getting a clue and which direction is it pointing? Come on now, it's pointing towards for your reference. That's a great reference. If you've got a little room in your rotation for some salacious frivolity, check out for your reference wherever you listen to podcasts. Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa New Zealand. Episode 18, A Carver and His Carvings. This podcast is supported by our amazing patrons, such as Eric, Rachel, Patrick, and Lars. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history Just before we started, you heard from the awesome people at the For Your Reference podcast. If you're into movies like I am, then I would highly recommend checking them out and hearing their hot takes on various films and TV such as their view on history's Vikings, which I fervently disagree with. If you need another reason though, I was a guest on their show recently to talk about one of my favourite films, Predestination, starring Ethan Hawke. So if for some reason you can't get enough of me and want to hear about another subject I'm passionate about, look up for your reference. Also, don't forget about the giveaway. I'm giving out three caps and three beanies with the Hans Tuatara on them to some lucky people. To enter, just follow the instructions in the show notes or on the website under this episode. It ends in two weeks, so get in while you can. Last time, we talked about the mythical origins of carving, telling the story of how Rua Tapupuki went down to the realm of Tangaroa, god of the sea, to rescue his son, only to burn down a whare and steal the po and tikotiko which his son had now become. We also talked a bit about the development of carving across the centuries and ended with tokotoko, the carved walking sticks that are still wielded today by great orators. This time, we will talk more about specific motifs used in Māori wood carving, focusing particularly on the depiction of humans as well as some examples from the archaeological record and talk a bit about the carvers themselves. One of the first times a European was presented with examples of motifs and patterns used by Māori carvers was in 1909, when Anahatarahui of Rotorua carved some patterns for Augustus Hamilton, the director of the Dominion Museum in Wellington. That building is still standing by the way, it was where the Great War exhibition for the trench experience was recently held near the War Memorial, and one of the key influences for the creation of this podcast. Anyway. These 16 pieces showcase some of the most common motifs used in Māori carving, as well as five representations of people. The first human depiction in this series was the weku, a front-facing person who usually shows their full face and body, and is likely the one most of you are familiar with. Another was the koruru, named after the owl, which was also front-facing, but featured large eyes and a split tongue. 
Similar to this was the ruru, which was a variant of the koruru, but with much more pointed brows, kind of like its namesake, the moorpork. Arguably, the most interesting though was the manaya, what you might call a side-facing mermaid. Well, sort of. They were typically humans with bird heads and fish tails, although this has been disputed for some time. The thought is that they don't represent bird people, but are the result of art developing over time, showing humans to have longer and longer lips, but due to lack of evidence, we aren't really sure. The other pieces showed the various patterns that were common, such as different spirals and the unaunahi pattern of fish scales that we mentioned last time. I'll put the images of these little sample squares in the show notes if you want to see them. Other popular forms were the tanifa, a kind of mermaid form, as they feature figures with human top halves and fishy bottom halves. Tanifa are generally considered in Māori mythology to be large reptiles and are distinguished into saltwater, freshwater and land tanifa, as well as essentially good and bad tanifa. We will talk more about them in the future though, as they feature in a lot of different myths about how the world was formed. Epa are found on the ends of marae, and are figures with full faces, cocked heads, and kind of look like they're dancing, with a bend at the hip and one arm up and the other down. Tekoteko is something we have briefly talked about already, as it is what Manahuri turned into after not paying proper tribute to Tangaroa. They are the figures at the tops of marae, usually the ancestor the whare nui represents, and are full 3D figures, though the term tekoteko could refer to any 3D figure, not just the ones found on marae. Again, we have already briefly mentioned lizards, which were used to signify death or evil, with images of men biting or eating lizards to show bravery. This is really just touching the tip of the iceberg though, There are so many different symbols of animals, people, gods, the sea, the moon, and everything else you could think of shown in so many different ways and styles, it would be impossible to tell them all here. What we will focus on a bit though, is the human figures in Māori carving, as those were arguably the most important part of carvings as a whole. We have to remember that this was a method of recording history, as well as expressing oneself through art. It's arguably the closest thing pre-European Māori had to writing. The figures in each carving are depictions of people that potentially existed. They tell the story of an individual, a whānau, or an iwi, and you should keep that in mind whenever you look at any Māori carvings. Human figures in carvings were generally not to scale, something we see in other Polynesian cultures as well as Māori. As we have mentioned in a previous episode, Certain styles would have the head take up two-thirds of the whole figure, or with one-third for the head, a third for the abdomen, and a third for the legs. The head itself can even be subdivided into thirds for the brow, eyes, and mouth. We do see some figures that are more anatomically correct though, and it has been thought that the reasons for stylizing these figures is that carvings depict deities or revered ancestors. Māori didn't want to make them seem too human, perhaps so their accomplishments and mana aren't diminished. Humans were usually represented standing with bent knees and elbows, with their arms across their chest or stomach, or sometimes at their sides, reaching to their mouth or covering the pubic region. The hands are actually interesting in and of themselves, because they are typically shown with only three fingers, 
and there is a bit of dispute as to where this came from. Some say the first man had three fingers and carved his human figures that way when he was taunted by others that he couldn't do as much as five-fingered people. Others suggest that the technique used to make fire with a stick was done with three fingers, and another story says that he Nanaroa, the guy who set up the Wānanga in the 1500s, had three sons who spread knowledge of carving. Though, this explanation is less likely, as he Nanaroa may be too recent and may not fit the timeline. Or, it could have something to do with birds, perhaps relating to the manaya, as bird talons are often represented in a similar fashion. Then again, it could be what we mentioned just before, that it was a way to make figures look less human and more divine. The fact of the matter is, though, we really don't know, but it is amazing that such a simple depiction that may have just resulted from a stylistic choice has sparked so much debate. Another common depiction in human carving is the outthrust tongue, probably better known to most as the pukana. You know, that thing that the All Blacks do immediately before or after a haka where they stick out their tongue so it curls around onto their chin and their eyes go wide so you can really see the whites in them. Makes you really wet yourself in fear. This motif was used a lot to show defiance, and you most commonly find it in places where defiance would be a key characteristic of the piece. So typically on objects related to war. Wakatoa, war canoes, carved gateways, and outside marae to name a few. One of the sources I read references Tahuki Turanga, the marae I keep mentioning a few episodes back that sits in Tapapa as a good example of this. As a side note, that marae is currently on loan from Rangofakata, an iwi from around Gisborne, and is due to be returned in the next few years. Just like any piece of art, when looking at carvings there is a lot to take into account to discern their meaning. Where is the carving located? What tribal area is it in? What is its function? Is it a farinui, pātaka, waka, or some other taonga? Is it part of a larger piece? How does it signify tribal presence? Is there some way that the stories and memories of the iwi are represented? Are there other carvings nearby that tell other aspects of the story? In the specific case of human carvings, there is even more to read into them, such as with the head. Are the eyes alert and watchful, or are they downcast and contemplative? Is the mouth large, reflecting someone who may be gregarious, or small, reflecting a humble person? A tongue that is significant may show someone who is talkative and knowledgeable, or may be defiant. Alternatively, a large mouth and tongue may show a great orator. Large shoulders may show a strong warrior or fisherman. How are they holding their hands? Across the belly, indicating self-protection? Or are they holding a weapon? Do their genitals indicate if they are a male or a female? Are there smaller figures between the main figure's legs, representing descendants? Other elements or symbols around them may tell a wider story, such as lizards indicating evil or death. The other thing we haven't really mentioned is likely the first thing you notice when you see a human carving. The eyes are often sparkly and bright from the power shells used to accentuate them and bring the figure to life. If you remember back to the social structure episodes, the Farinui was the most important structure of the marae complex and could take years to build. A well-decorated Farinui, or Farifakairo, was the pinnacle of a carver's achievements, 
usually their magnum opus. The carvings on a whare whakaero were so prized, in fact, that if it was known an attack was coming from a neighbouring hapu, the carvings might be removed and hidden in a swamp or a cave nearby, which did actually happen during the later musket wars. When a community wanted to construct a whare nui or a whare whakaero, an outside master carver was often brought in to oversee the project if those skills weren't locally available. This was also the same for constructing a pataka or a wakatoua. All of these carvers would be fed and housed at the local hapu's expense and sent home with gifts of ornaments or garments as payment for their services. The interesting thing about carvers themselves was that they were from all walks of life. Even slaves could become renowned carvers if they showed the aptitude for it, being elevated somewhat. Although, they may not be allowed to work on more tapu projects due to their station, like whare whakairo. It was expected though, that the noble class, rangatera, have some sort of artistic skill, which was often carving, but could also be tomoko, singing waiata, whaikarero, or wielding a taiaha. When a whare nui or a whare whakairo was complete, a hui would be had that would involve the presentation of the marae to the community, and tapu lifted from it. This was arguably the most dangerous time for the master carver. Given the high amount of tapu, and as such, spiritual importance, as well as physical importance for mana, a perceived mistake by the new owners could result in the execution of the master carver and his subordinates. Partly due to this, problems during the carving process were often seen as bad omens, and needed to be removed by ritual means. One such example is of a carving team from multiple hapu who had some men fall ill and die, taking this to be some sort of curse. It was found that the women were using the wood chips from the chisel of the ariki in their fires to cook food. As we know, women and food were noa, and these wood chips would be very tapu. So this was a big no-no. To combat this, chips were burned and kumara cooked on them. The chief's daughter then ate the kumara, which removed the curse. Once the whare was complete, three women were asked to walk across the threshold to ensure any tapu or curse was totally removed. Not only is this interesting in how it relates to carving, it shows the complex interactions and beliefs Māori had and do have around tapu and noa. Another little tidbit of the construction of a whare nui is the use of different compositions, either figure-dominated or spiral-dominated. Spirals are probably one of the most defining features of Māori art, particularly the double spiral, and are often featured on door lintels, illustrating a theme of breaking apart and unification, like the idea of broken and disparate elements entering together into a whare. We see this theme throughout Māori art, and it is thought to be perhaps a bigger idea in Māori society as a whole. One of the interesting things about carving that we haven't really mentioned yet is the variety of objects Māori would carve. We have mostly focused on whare nui carvings up until this point, but we see things like combs, weapons, including muskets when they become available, musical instruments, paddles, fish hooks, and all sorts of other things in not only wood, but bone, stone, and ponamu, depending on the item in question. This would not only add personal significance to their owners, but also perhaps instill some modi into them, particularly in the case of weapons and muskets. Unlike the more flashy carving found on things like Tokipatangata and Whare 
These everyday objects had more restrictive carving in that they used what may have been shorthand or mini versions of wider designs and motifs. What is most interesting about these though is that they generally show no regional variation, unlike larger designs. This could be because there were widely accepted stylistic conventions for smaller pieces, or perhaps just simply due to the restrictively small size of the medium. Objects like these have been used to kind of track how Māori styles developed from that East Polynesian rectilinear style to the more Māori curvilinear style, but in saying that, we aren't entirely sure if the more curvilinear style was brought with them, as we see both styles present in other parts of Polynesia. We even see some of the earlier styles closer to East Polynesia in Southland, although this could be caused by Southland's isolation from the rest of the Māori population. Another reason trying to map the development of Māori carving is difficult is that pretty much all our examples come from the 18th century or later. Really anything prior to that period is a bit of guesswork, as we just don't know, and we really shouldn't assume one way or the other. Doesn't stop historians and archaeologists trying though. Some carvings we don't know the age of, but are thought to be of earlier creation due to their similarity to the East Polynesian style. But again, we really don't know. One point of reference we do have is from pieces preserved in swamps. In particular, we have one site from a swamp in Cody Point in the Bay of Plenty, which was excavated to reveal combs and wood carving motifs, the earliest dating to the first half of the 1600s, even showing the change in styles and trends for these objects. From the combs in particular, we see a change from square tops to more rounded tops, which could have a range of simple to more elaborate carving to decorate them. Some of the earlier pieces found in this deposit weren't adorned at all, perhaps indicating that decoration and carving of these objects was a later feature. But we should remember that a lot of our information comes from the collections made by Europeans who naturally were more interested in what looked cool, rather than getting a broad snapshot of a community's carving talent. There was also anthropomorphic figures found at the top and bottom of the deposit, so the earliest and latest periods, and we find that they are not in what you would call that Māori style, really driving home that fact that carving styles were more broad and complex than what we really know. We do know that carvers passed down their styles, motifs, and the meanings behind them, such as with the combs likely being made by the same few related craftsmen. On the flip side, however, not knowing the meanings behind the motifs can lead to some carvings being copied with small but still noticeable changes. This actually has happened over time, especially when you look at the modern day, as the widespread loss of knowledge all across the country pretty much forced Māori artisans to kind of pick up the pieces and figure it out. Social upheaval could provide the right environment for a change in styles or popularisation of motifs to occur to represent the triumphs, struggles and such of a particular group, as we see in other cultures. The migrations of the 14th and 15th centuries could be a potential candidate for this, along with the arrival of the British Empire. The earliest wood carvings we have are from Waitoti's Swamp, dating between 1380 to 1500 or so. There are a number of items that were found at the site, but the most significant were a small carved head and a decorated board that is thought to be part of a waka. The head seems to have been originally attached to something, maybe a god stick, 
which is basically some sort of decorated stick that could be used to channel the power of a particular god by planting it in the ground or using it in rituals. The head resembles other god sticks found in Wanganui, near the site it was found, as well as others around the country, so given that, and other evidence, its presence isn't too surprising. The double spirals on the board, however, are much more interesting, as it is the first major indication of that motif, 400 years before European arrival in Aotearoa. I'll put some pictures up of this and the head, but the interesting thing about the spirals is that they aren't made the same way you see spirals made in other Māori carvings. They're just notches in the wood, which is something that is really unusual in general, but we do see this method used to decorate other items in this particular deposit. It isn't clear whether this was a widespread style or something that was isolated to just this area, but it is thought that this was an early style of decoration. To finish off, I want to talk about something that I thought was so cool, I just had to put it in somewhere. Even if it meant making this episode longer than it should be, and it isn't strictly carving. What I'm talking about is rocks. Mostly found in the South Island in North Otago and South Canterbury, that have been dated to before 1500 that have been drawn on. Not carved, drawn with charcoal or red okra. Mostly found in limestone shelters, overhangs and outcrops of rock. If that doesn't amaze and fascinate you by now, you haven't been paying attention the last four episodes. This to me is such an anomaly. We always hear about and see carvings, but I've never even heard of Māori rock drawings, and I bet you haven't either. What's even more fascinating is that the red okra, which was used as a pigment, despite oftentimes being applied dry, was perhaps applied wet. And you know what wet drawing is? Well that's painting, baby! So Māori were drawing and painting, and they were depicting all sorts of subject matter, both realistically and stylistically. Humans, birds, fish, tanifa, as well as various designs and shapes. The human figures are usually represented in full face or profile with flexed limbs, and are the most easily recognisable, with birds that are clearly moa being the next most common. There are also dogs, which are often stylized heavily, and potentially dolphins, although they could just be stylized fish. Most of the patterns are geometrical curvilinear designs, like chevrons, spirals, and concentric curved lines. What makes these even more interesting, if I haven't convinced you already, is that the styles stay the same across time and space, indicating little cultural change, which would make sense in the sparsely populated isolated regions south of modern Christchurch. The majority of the carvings date more specifically between 1200 and 1500, which lines up with the time that the area was most likely abandoned due to those factors we discussed in previous episodes. In the North Island, there isn't many comparable pieces, but we do know that Joel Samuel Polak, an early European writer in New Zealand, wrote about some drawings in a cave in Talaga Bay, on the east coast of the North Island, in 1838. Some were allegedly drawn by Tupaya, the Tahitian guide on Cook's first voyage, some 70 or so years prior. This is disputed, but not outside the realms of possibility, as the piece was particularly faded, indicating that the drawings didn't last long in those conditions, perhaps a reason why we don't see as much rock art in the North Island as the South Island. 
The other interesting nugget from these is that the thinking goes that these drawings were mostly for fun rather than function, like carvings were, which just raises all sorts of other questions. Ones we can't answer now though. Like always, you can find images of some of these amazing drawings on the website under this episode. You didn't think I'd just say all of that and leave you hanging, did you? Going back to carving, there have been lots of amazing carvers throughout Aotearoa's history, with many likely being lost to history itself, or only being found in oral tales, like Hine Nanaroa. Today, if an aspiring carver isn't taught by a local tonga, they are often taught at the New Zealand Māori Arts and Crafts Institute in Rotorua, whose predecessor was established in 1927 after a major period of Māori cultural suppression, most famously in the form of the Tonga Suppression Act of 1907, which is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. Te Wānanga Whakaira Rako or Aotearoa out of the Māori Arts and Crafts Institute accepts five students each year from across the country to teach woodcarving. One of the sources used for these episodes was actually written by a student from the first batch taken in 1967, who is currently the master carver. Along with Fakairo Rako, the school teaches carving for bone, stone and ponamu, as well as tamoko, weaving, waka building and bronze casting. With that, here ends our look at Māori carving. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this as much as I have producing these episodes. It really is a fascinating topic that I've only scratched the surface of and probably got a few things wrong due to its vastness. It is extremely important though to building that picture of pre-European Māori. Who they were, what their motivations were, what they valued, both materially and spiritually, to really round out our understanding, especially as the main theme once Europeans arrive will be one of conflict between two very different cultures and we need to ensure we understand where each side is coming from. Plus, of course, it is also super interesting, as well as an underrepresented aspect of the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. So with that, where do we go from here? Well, next time. We will continue the story with Maui, and after that, move on to another Māori art. Weaving. We will be talking clothes, cloaks, flax, muka, and even look at the New Zealand flax processing and export industry, which only ended in 1985. It's going to be another fantastic adventure into Māori culture. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can reach me through email at historyaltaradoa at gmail.com, or Twitter at historyaltaradoa, or Facebook at History Aotearoa New Zealand Podcast. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. This podcast is a one-man band. If you enjoy listening to me talk history, you can support us through Patreon or rate us on iTunes or your preferred podcast platform. It means a lot and helps us grow, spreading the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, haritu atu, hokitu mai. See you next time. was in 1909 when Anahatarahui 